Welcome to Walker of Worlds podcast. My name's Rachel and this is the podcast where we step behind the veil and take a look at some long lost and little known spooky stories and urban legends. Warminster is a beautiful town in the picturesque county of Wiltshire. It has a population of around 17,000 people and is located on the eastern edge of Salisbury Plains. Wiltshire is home to many strange sights and even stranger stories. At least one pub has a hand of glory, a trinket which has been cut from a hanged man and is believed to bring good luck. There's the legend of the Moonrakers, the title of which pretty much explains the story. And of course, Wiltshire is pretty much the home to crop circles, with several appearing every year. Although these days they're pretty much just made by the locals, rather than visitors from outer space. But Warminster had something special. Warminster is the kind of town where everyone knows everybody else. In fact, after spending several years living in Wiltshire, I can safely say that most of the county is like that. People know things about you before you even know them about yourself. On Christmas Day 1964, there were a number of strange sightings across the area. Soldiers at Nook Camp reportedly said it was as if a huge chimney stack from the main block was ripped from the rooftop and scattered in solid chunks of masonry across the whole camp area. At 1.25am on Christmas Day, Mildred heard what she said sounded as though twigs were being brushed against the roof of her house. The sound ended up being like a giant hailstones raining down on the tiles. But it was Marjorie By's tale that would capture the imagination of not just Warminster, but the whole world. She is reported to have said the sonic deluge broke with full fury on an ordinary housewife. Weirdly crackling noises menacing sounds, sudden vibrations and shockwaves of violent force. This caught the attention of local journalist Arthur Shuttlewood, who wrote a piece on the strange Christmas Day events for the Warminster Journal. But those few sightings in the early hours of December 25th were just the beginning. In February 1965, David Holton and a number of other people would report the oddity that would become another point in the mystery that surrounded Warminster. He is quoted as saying a flock of pigeons was killed in flight when tangling with the thing. They brushed into fatal contact with paralysing sound beams in woods in Crockerton near Warminster. Stiff-winged, they plummeted earthward. The thing, in its most stunning guise, was directly responsible. A number of people testified to a high-pitched droning. The thing... This is what the people of Warminster called the UFO that was apparently causing such a ruckus in their tiny town. The 60s and 70s were prime time for mass UFO sightings, events which occasionally still happen as with the Phoenix Lights in 1997 and the O'Hare International Airport sighting in 2006. The UK, oddly, has witnessed a number of these mass sightings, including the Dudley Dorito which which we covered several months ago and which can be found on this channel. Throughout 1965, events in the town continued and each one was stranger than the previous. In March 1965, just a few weeks after the death of the group of pigeons, three families heard loud noises coming from above their heads. The noises were so loud that their windows rattled and roofs shook. Then, in June 1965, the UFO flap really took hold. Descriptions of the UFO vary from person to person, with one describing what they saw as a cigar-shaped and covered with winking bright lights, and another like twin red-hot pokers hanging downwards, one on top of the other with a black space in between. The unusual events began to receive national attention and people flocked to Warminster hoping to get a glimpse of the thing. Over the August bank holiday of 1965, an estimated 8,000 people descended on the town. 
The following month, when resident Gordon Faulkner claimed to have captured a photo of the UFO, Daily Mirror published the picture, garnering even more publicity for Warminster. By that time, the news had even made its way stateside, with newspapers as far as California reporting on the eerie events in the sleepy market town. By this point, Arthur Shuttlewood, who as we know is a journalist and editor for the Warminster Journal, was documenting every sighting. He was even handing them off to national UK newspapers, including the Daily Mail. There were so many alleged sightings that Arthur wrote several books on the subject. Although at first sceptical of UFOs, he later became convinced that the reported visitations were real. In August 1965, he was handed the photograph that Gordon Faulkner had taken, which appeared to show a classic flying saucer in the skies above the town. Soon afterwards, he supposedly spotted a saucer of his own. In 1973, he claimed to have seen an average of two per week over seven years, making around 800 sightings in total. In that year, the BBC attended Warminster to join UFO spotters hoping to record something inexplicable. As a postscript, by the 1990s, someone who claimed to, someone claims to have faked the Faulkner photograph, which kick-started Shuttlewood's incident, interest. The most pyrotechnically spectacular of these noise events happened on August 17, 1965. A detonation never so far explained as Shuttlewood ex- described it, rocked the houses on the Boreham Field housing estate. Walter Curtis described it as a huge blast. A whole series of jolts and explosions were felt underfoot. Biggest explosion I've ever heard, he said. His wife added, it was as though the gas main right opposite us had blown up with a tremendous roar. David Pinnell, on hearing the explosion, ran outside to see a monstrous orange flame in the sky. It was shaped like an electric bulb. By its light, I could clearly see the hills. The light faded and then what appeared to him as a great ball of smoke with a funny yellow core floated down from the hills, crackling and hissing whenever it touched grass or trees. Percy Westinghall described the explosion as one hell of a bang, likening it to the sound of a building being demolished. His wife also noted that minor quakes seemed to follow the explosion. Another unnamed witness to the illuminated ball of smoke described its golden heart and how it was very large and shining. The puffball settled in the road and gradually dispersed in straggling wisps, the fiery centre burning out as it did so. Two houses had some broken windows, but this was the only damage caused by the explosion. Seeking possible causes for the explosion, Shuttlewood talked to officials at the nearby School of Infantry and Battlesbury Barracks, as well as local aerodromes, all denied responsibility. Hypothesis put to him regarding thunderbolts or meteorites he wrote off as highly improbable. In the Warminster Mystery, Shuttlewood describes the explosion as the capers of the thing in baleful mood. Shuttlewood also reports that tangled pieces of a white light brittle metal were found at the Battlesbury site, although the use of the of the phrase Battlesbury site only serves to confuse matters. Did the explosion take place near Boreham Field Estate or near Battlesbury, a large hill about a mile to the north of the estate? If the explosion took place near Battlesbury, why were the windows for the buildings, such as those of the army barracks, which would have been close to the explosion, not affected by the blast? Why were houses in the Dean, a part of the Boreham Field Estate, close to Battlesbury, not affected? Of course, a more accurate record might be available from the local papers at the time. In this case, you could hope, not hope to get a more accurate version of the story from the Warminster Journal, as surprisingly the story does not appear there. It was on August 29th, 1965, around the time that people dis- were descending onto Warminster for a skywatch, that the photograph that was given to Arthur Shuttlewood was taken. 
In the evening of that day, George Faulkner reported as saying, As I shut the door behind me, I became aware of the thing. As it flew fast and low over the south of the town, I could just make out the unusual shape. It made little to no noise. Hurriedly, I got my camera free and pointed it at the craft, but the line of flight was too fast to follow. So I held the camera in front of it and pressed the trigger as it entered the viewfinder. I did not dream that I would get anything on the film at all, and I was amazed when I saw what later came out. He obviously later sent the photograph to Shuttlewood. The photograph, as you can imagine, is grainy. Shot in black and white, the image appears to show a flying disc topped with a dome, the classic flying saucer which was spotted through so much of the early to mid-20th century. Although UFOs were now being seen frequently around Warminster, the strange sounds still continued to be heard. And on the 10th of August 1965 came confirmation that the sounds might be connected to the UFOs. At 3.45am on that day, Rachel Atwell was woken by a terrible droning sound. It made the bed and floor shake. I went over to the bedroom window and looked out. Between the two bungalows opposite, about 200 yards above the range of hills beyond, was a bright object like a massive star. I have never believed in flying saucers, but I cannot describe it as anything else. It was definitely domed on top and was huge in size. An unwinking light of uncanny brilliance. It hung there in all its glory and did not frighten me, but the awful noise it made did. Yet despite the noise, which with the sighting lasted for some 25 minutes, not one of my neighbours on the private estate saw or heard anything. I asked each one of them later that day. The humming began to attenuate and the UFO began to flicker. The noise finally stopped and the object vanished from sight. As with the reports from earlier in the year, it was the noise that was the disturbing aspect of the phenomenon. The noise was most upsetting to me. I felt that there was a tight band of steel around my forehead and towards the end a pounding and a hammering at my eardrums. Throughout 1965 and for the first half of 1966, noises continued to be reported. On the 17th of March 1965, Mr and Mrs Brown's house was rattled. The Marson household was assaulted by the noises in May 1965 and June 1965. <laughs> a very graphic account of the effects of the noise were given by... Er Eric Payne. At 11pm on the 28th of March 1965, he was walking down a dark, foggy, quiet road when he heard a sound that he described as similar to the sound of the wind in telegraph wires. The sound increased in intensity, however, and he was pushed and held down by a tremendous racket like a gigantic tin can with huge nuts and bolts inside being rattled over your head. He heard a shrill whining and buzzing which nearly drove him mad. He reports that his head was pushed from side to side and I might as, well have been, might as well have left my arms and legs at home for all the use they were. I simply could not stop this tremendous downward pressure. I crawled around in the road for a bit and then sank to my knees on the grass verge. The report shows how contradictory or perhaps how sloppy many UFO reports and certainly those of Shuttlewood can be. If, as Payne reports, he might as well have left his arms and legs at home for all the use they were, how was he able to crawl around the road for a bit? And why... If he was already crawling, did he then sink to his knees on the grass verge? I'm not doubting Mr Payne's experience. I merely point out that Shuttlewood's report could be vague. What is also mysterious is that the event is reported in an article by Shuttlewood in the Warminster Journal in December 1965 as happening in 1964. Rogers reports the phenomenon as happening in January 1965. In Rogers' account, the only sound described is that similar to the hum one hears from the wind through the telephone wires. Sightings continued through the 1960s and into the 1970s until they slowly began to fade away. There have been more recent sightings in the town, but nothing on the scale of the Warminster thing. 
Investigations have into the thing have led to no conclusive results nor answers. There have been suggestions that the sounds and sightings could have been linked to nearby military bases. Wiltshire, while a hotspot for the weird and wonderful, is also a hotspot for the military. Warminster is located at the edge of Salisbury Plain, a 300 square mile section of the country which is home to Stonehenge and also to the military. Having lived in Salisbury, I can attest to both the weirdness and the noises. It wasn't unusual to be woken up by a giant C5 galaxy roaring overhead as it came in to land at nearby Boscombe Down. Nor was it unusual to see strange things both in the sky and on the ground, for Wiltshire is also home to crop circles. But that's a story for another podcast, which I'll do at some point. Warminster now obviously celebrates its history with the thing, and there are regular events that surround it, as well as a multitude of books which you can pick up. The story does seem to be kind of a little bit all over the place and obviously this podcast flicks backwards and forwards between various points in 1964 and 1965 and obviously as we said during the uh, the podcast it is generally due down to some of the vague reporting on some of the sightings that you can't quite get a grasp on when things were happening but that's not to deny that something strange didn't happen there. If you get the chance do go and visit Wiltshire Go and visit Warminster, go and visit the towns and cities that are there, because not only is it weird, but it is stunningly beautiful around there. Thank you so much for listening. If you like your books a little on the strange side, and you enjoy tales of UFOs, the paranormal and the weird, please check out the website at www.roswellpublishing.co.uk. And until next time, stay spooky.